you to just grab that chair there. Okay. Yeah. Just use that. <clears throat> Good morning. Wonderful to be with you. We've had a wonderful time the last two days at the conference, just being able to share something of our vision, our burden that the Lord has given us over the past 30 years, working in a Muslim context in Senegal, West Africa, as well as some in the Middle East now. And one thing that the Lord has put on our hearts to do is we've we've had the privilege of seeing God call out a people for His name and seeing a church established and seeing the believers now carrying on under God. And uh, to see uh, a radio ministry established, and then 2001, 9/11 came along, and uh, began the Lord began to reshape our ministry through an internet ministry. Got a lot of emails from Muslims around the world, and uh, I put some of the excerpts from those emails in a book that's on the back there, One God, One Message, and it, it presents the gospel very clearly, but in contrast to what Muslims believe, and it's actually written for Muslims and for seekers. So. Feel free to look at the little booklet, Your Story, as well as uh, One God, One Message. Help yourself to your story. Uh, the books are $10, but if you don't have it, just take one while supply lasts. And uh, it, it is really a tool for evangelism. It'll thrill your own spirit, too, as you see the big picture of the gospel. You know, I, I was privileged to be raised in a Christian home. By the way, my wife Carol is sitting over there. She also was uh, privileged to grow up in a Christian home. And, you know, uh, I heard the stories. In Sunday school, I knew the I knew the the main stories of the Bible, but I, I don't think I ever saw how they fitted together as one story, and that is such a blessing when you come to that place where you see, wow, you know, there are more than like 500 stories in the Bible, but they really fit together to make one story. And this morning, what I'd like to do is just, you know, well, let me just think back to our last two days. Uh, we've been focusing a lot on the challenge of reaching Muslims, the 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 the, the thing that Islam. Uh, raises up against uh, against the gospel and the challenge of breaking through all those barriers that are there. Uh, our theme was uh, good news for the nations. And we did in our last session yesterday, I used a series of visual aids, and we contrasted uh, what Muslims believe with what the Bible teaches. And as you saw, concerning the main doctrines of God, man, sin, and salvation, the contrasts are just incredibly distinct. Now today I'm not talking about Muslims I'm not talking about the contrast. I just want to give you that good news message. But what's so wonderful about this book is that the message of the gospel, the good news, was foretold beforehand. Only God can write history before it happens. And that's what God did for us through his prophets. You know, one of the verses, if I could quote a verse too, with the Sunday school kids, that uh, is a classic for us is that Christ died for our sins. First Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, right? Christ died for our sins. I'm going to misquote it for you, okay? Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. What did I leave out? According to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Which Scriptures? The New Testament? No. Yes and no. But that's not what Paul was talking about. The New Testament wasn't in hand yet when he quoted, when he said those words. He was talking about the Old Testament Scriptures that were written beforehand by the prophets. So Christ died for our sins according to the predictions of the prophets in the Old Testament Scriptures. According to the plethora of symbols that God gave to point to this coming Savior. And he was buried and he rose again the third day according to those same Old Testament scriptures. And so we also read in this in God's book that the, the, the Bible or the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, right? That's our weapon as we take on the whole armor of God described in Ephesians 6. It's the sword of the Spirit. How many chapters are there in the Bible? 1,000? 
189. Okay? Well, I want us to think of, as we think of the sword of the Spirit, now here we are with those 1,189 chapters, but think of the handle as the first four chapters. I believe that if you get a hold of the first four chapters of the Bible in a clear way, you are just going to enjoy the rest of those 1,185 chapters so much more because that is the handle. That is the foundation. Uh, when we re- read a book to kids, if we read a storybook, okay, I've got one in here somewhere. These are little visual aids that I use uh, extensively in presenting the gospel with. Uh, Chicken Little, all right? I'm not going to tell you the story this morning, but if I were to tell you the story, where would I start? Would I j- just say, oh, we're just going to jump in here, Goosey Lucy and the Gonkslings honked? You know, or do I read the last page first? No, it's not going to make sense to you if I do that. I start at the beginning, and I read sequentially through the book, and then even a child can understand the story. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start at the beginning. And if you get those first introductory thoughts from God's Word, then the rest of it's going to make amazing sense. So that's what we want to do. So I'm opening my Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And the first verse is, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Just stop there. We're going to look at, we're going to actually read just a few key verses in each of the four chapters. And that, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, are definitely key verses. We start out this way In the beginning, God. God was there before there was time, before there was space, before there was substance. God was there. But look at it says that there was someone's hovering over the face of the waters. It is the Spirit of God. And then we hear God speaking. And so from the very beginning, there's God and His Spirit and His Word working together to create. We know that God created everything that we see today in six days. On day one, He said, let there be light. Now, only God can create by speaking. I can't say, you know, I'm hungry. I'd like a a nice dinner of chicken and rice. And I just snap my finger and let there be chicken and rice. It's not there, is it? I can't do that. But God can because He's God. And we can learn things about God from the six days of creation. Day one, God is light, the Scripture says. Light is pure. Light is a mystery. But it says, the Scripture says that God Himself is light. He's the source of light. God is holy. He's set apart. He's pure. On day two, He creates the atmosphere. He raises up these trillions of tons of water. It's a mixture of water, of, of uh, hydrogen and oxygen and ozone and all these things that are necessary so our planet isn't like Venus. You know, if you go to Venus, you're not going to live very long there, are you? The acid will just eat you up in seconds. You can't live there. But the earth was made to be inhabited. So God is all-powerful that He could make the atmosphere and raise it up and hold it in its place. On day three, He creates the vegetation. He separates the dry land from the wetlands. And He he creates trees to bear fruit, to bear seed after their kind and plants. And there are some two million kinds of food on planet earth if you count the food that's there for man and for beast. Now God could have just given us banana beans and rice and said, you can live on that. I'm going to give you three things to eat every day. It's banana beans and rice. But God didn't do that. Why? Because God is good. He's generous. 
The scripture says, and God saw that it was good. And so we learn something about God's generous, generous good spirit. On day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. We've got a little tennis ball. That'll represent planet Earth. All right? We know that the Earth turns at a, every 24 hours, a 23-degree axis. And meanwhile, the moon is out here, and it's going around the Earth once every month, 30 days or so. And, of course, that whole system is going around the sun that's way out there, right? So there's this precision in all that God made. The moon, we never see the back side of it, do we? It's always the face. So there it is going around the sun, but it's always, uh, the, the earth rather, it's always facing the earth. We didn't see the backside till 1968 when Apollo 8 went to the backside and took some pictures for us. But Psalm 89 says that God has set the moon in the heavens as a testimony of his faithfulness. He keeps his word, doesn't he? And so that teaches us something about God too, that he's faithful. He always keeps his word. If he tells something to be, it's going to be. All right. Day five, he creates the fish and the birds. And the scripture says, for example, let the waters teem with life. Teem means to be packed with, crammed with, filled with. Whether you're talking about little invisible plankton or big blue whales, he made the ocean to be filled with life. God is life. He's the author of life. Only Life can only come from him. And then on day six, he creates the animal world. And just think of that animal world with its parents caring for their young. And of course, this was before anything bad was in the world. Our, our children, when we lived in Senegal, our boys would raise rabbits. I don't know what's cuter than a little, uh, little two-week-old, three-week-old bunny rabbit, you know? And you just can see already a reflection of God's nature of love. But that's not really what points us to the God of love. It's what happened later in day six. And that's another key verse. Chapter 1, verse 26. After God made the animals, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we're introduced now to man. And it teaches us something about God. It teaches us that God is love. I'm going to use a, a visual aid. Just imagine a nice, clean, uh, white t-shirt here. We'll pull out. And uh, this will remind us of the first man that God created. When God made him, he was perfect in every way. Uh, there was no flaw in him. And if you could have looked inside his heart, too, you would have seen perfection. There was no sin there yet. Uh, God is good. He only makes that which is good. God is perfect and holy. He only makes that which is perfect and holy. And so the first man and woman that God created was made in the image of God. Now that means that man was made to reflect God's character. If God is holy, if God is faithful, uh, God is love, then man would reflect that faithfulness, holiness, love. Uh, also, God gave to man an intellect, the ability to communicate with God. Now, the animals can't do that, can they? No, but man can. A man has the ability to think God's thoughts after him, to think the thoughts that God has and that God reveals to him and to understand them. Uh, God also gave to man emotions, so in his heart he could hate what God hates and love what God loves. 
He also gave to man the freedom of choice. Now, God didn't want a robot. Imagine if uh, God says, okay, today I really feel like hearing man say that he loves me. So God pushes a little button. I love you, God. Would that give God happiness in his heart? Of course not. Or I will obey you, God. No, that's not what God was looking for. He wanted a relationship, didn't he? He wanted man to be his friend. He wanted man to be his son, his daughter. He wanted a close, close relationship with man. But he would test man. You see, that relationship would have to be tested. So we see this holy, faithful God creating man in his own image. And even before he creates the woman, now we're going to jump into chapter 2. Verse 17, verse 16 and 17. Another key verse in Scripture. In fact, I'm of the opinion that if you get a hold of what's in this verse, it'll help you understand the rest of the story of the Bible. This is so important. So now God, before he's even created the woman, Adam is in this beautiful, perfect garden. And God says to the man, after he's given him, by the way, some work to do, very pleasing work, there's no pain in it, it's caring for the garden. Basically, the first man was a gardener and a zoologist. His job was to name the animals and to care for the garden. Now God says to him, verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Remember the generous spirit of God that we saw. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely... What did God say? Die. You shall surely die. I want to show you what God didn't say, first of all. Because we, I told you we work in a Muslim country and their people believe that they're going to be accepted of God. They have to pray and fast and do a lot of things. And like a lot of people think, maybe if God will accept me, I need to go to church and be baptized and do all these things. Otherwise, you know, well, that's the thinking of a lot of people to be accepted of God. But God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't say, uh, you'll have to make some prayer beads and start doing religious deeds, did he? That's not what he said. And yet, a lot of people think that, that they know there's a problem there, and so they think, I've got to do something to fix it. But we'll talk more about that. But I want you to remember what God did say. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, don't be shocked at my next visual aid here. It's a knife. But it's going to make us think of what God said. He said, if you eat from that tree, you will die. And this knife can make us think of death. Uh, before I came in here, I, I cut a little branch off a plant out there. Okay, It was separated from its source of life. What would you say? Is this plant alive or dead? It sort of looks alive, doesn't it? Maybe if it was sticking out like this, got to freshen it up here, and you, you didn't see that it was cut off, you could say, yeah, it's fine. But when you see it's cut off, you say, oh, it's as good as dead. And actually, there are three kinds of death that we could think of when we look at that branch. And it will teach us exactly what God was saying to Adam. One, it's been separated from the tree. So the relationship with the tree is broken. It's dead. That relationship is over. Also, the branch, you can already see it's getting a little wilted. That's because physical death has already installed itself in the branch. The branch is dying physically. And you come back in a few days and it's going to be all dried up. And what can you do with a dry branch? Well, you can throw it in the fire and burn it. It's not really good for anything else, is it? God was saying to Adam, if you eat from that tree, if you disobey my command, my one law, then immediately you will die spiritually. Our relationship will be broken because 
I made you holy and perfect, but I'm holy and perfect, and if you sin, there'll be a separation there. Spiritual death. Your body will begin to die that same day you eat from the tree. Physically, your body will begin to wilt and eventually die, go back to dust. And ultimately, you'll end up in the place that I prepared for the devil and his angels. That's another story. But you'll end up in the place of eternal separation from God, eternal death. And so that's what God was saying to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you will be separated from me forever. The penalty of sin is death. Well, we go on in the story. We see then God, he did the first surgery. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. He pulls a, uh, he cuts and takes a, a rib out of Adam's side and he forms a woman for the man, a helpmate. And he presents her to him and God performs the first marriage as well. And then look at the last verse of chapter 2. It's important. Keep in mind, if you want a nice little outline for your Bible, that the first two chapters show us nothing but perfection and the last two chapters show us nothing but perfection. But it's in between Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 that we see the problem that comes in. So here we have the last verse in a perfect world. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. It's important to understand that, that they were completely comfortable in the presence of each other. There was no problem in their relationship and they were completely comfortable in the presence of God Himself. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so the Scripture tells us Later, you know, a good storyteller doesn't give all the details up front. It'd get very, very heavy, the story. You'd lose the story if you tried. But later in Scripture, he explains to us, guess who was in the serpent? It was none other than Satan himself. It was the devil who was in the serpent and was there to deceive. Satan means adversary, God's adversary. Devil means deceiver. Of course, you, I trust that you know where Satan came from. Before God created man, He created the angels. The angels were perfect. And God also gave them a choice. And one of them at one point in eternity lifts Himself up and says, I want to take God's place. I want to sit in the throne of God. And so God puts Him out of heaven and a third of the angels follow with Him. And they become known as Satan and his demons. And now as they see this perfect creation that God has made, Satan's thinking, I want to destroy. I'm God's adversary. I want to deceive the man, the woman, and I want them to follow me. I don't want them to follow God. I want them to go their own way and not go God's way. And so Satan comes. He's speaking through the serpent. Maybe you're thinking, that's weird, a snake talking. Well, you know what? I don't think it was that surprising to Adam or Eve. They were discovering new things every day in the garden, this incredible place where God had put them. I mean, it was, if you imagine, an enchanted garden. This was amazing, just all the beauty and things that were to discover. And today, wow, the serpent is talking. And so Eve listens. Adam was somewhere around there. And the serpent says, did God really say? Did God really say you should not eat from all the trees of the garden? You know, inflecting that God is selfish. He's stingy, you know. He doesn't want you to enjoy all these good things. And the woman says, yes, God said, you know, we'll die if we eat from that tree. Oh, says the serpent, you will not surely die. God knows. Listen to what Satan's saying. 
Who is Satan to speak for God? But that's what he's doing. He's first casting doubt on the Word of God. Did God really say? And now he's speaking for God. That's what Satan does. Look at the false religions out there. There are more than 10,000 religions in the world today. And they all claim to speak for God. Well, God has spoken. He had spoken to Adam. And he said, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Satan's saying, no, you will not surely die. God knows that you'll become wise. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Well, Satan always mixes a little truth in with his life. They would know good and evil, but he didn't tell them the consequences that would come with that. And so the woman sees that it looks good, and she takes the fruit, and she tastes it, and she gives to her husband who is with her, and he tastes it. And the Scripture says, then, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, another key verse, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It was the moment that Adam ate that their eyes were both open. You see, God had made the man responsible. He was the head of the human race that would come forth from him. And it's the moment that he eats that now they both have their eyes open. They both suddenly feel ashamed. There's a change. You remember what they were. They were perfect up to that point. But now there's a drastic change. And I'm going to let this t-shirt represent what took place. They become sinners, right? Nasty old t-shirt here. They become sinners. And if you could look in their hearts, well, the root of sin was there too. They were no longer perfect. And as us now, they're, they're going to be separated from God. They can no longer have fellowship with this holy God who had made them for Himself. And so they realize they're naked. They're no longer comfortable standing around like that. They're no longer comfortable with the thought that God is going to come in the cool of the evening as He does regularly to have fellowship with us. And we're naked. We're not comfortable anymore. And so what do they do? They sew fig leaves together. And they try to cover their nakedness. Did that fix their problem? Were they comfortable after that? No. Read verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so they weren't comfortable. It's like people today with all the religious deeds. You know, they just keep doing them day after day after day, but it doesn't make them comfortable. If it did, they could stop doing it, right? They could say, we're, we're good again. But we're not. Did you notice on these prayer beads, if you go once around, you know, Muslims have what they do with it. You know, you have to repeat names of God or whatever their religious leader tells them to do. And so every day they're doing this over and over and over and over and over. And we go once around, well, they can mark it. I did one round and... They can go again and mark it again and so on ten times and uh, slide it back and start all over. It's never finished. Man's efforts will never be finished. And Adam and Eve knew that their fig leaves hadn't fixed their problem. Well, God comes and He says, where are you? He knew where they were, but He wants them to answer. And the man blames God and the woman. The woman you gave me, she basically made me do it. And the woman blames the serpent, but God calls them all into account. And he begins to pronounce a series of curses, beginning with the serpent. The serpent's now going to crawl on its belly. Before then, it had legs. If you look today at certain varieties of boa constrictors and pythons, you'll see that they have remnants of where apparently they once had legs. In any case, we know that God consigned the serpent to crawl down on the ground. That would be a visual aid for us uh, till the end of time to remind us of what happened on that day. God also pronounces a curse upon the woman. You're going to have pain in childbirth. You're going to have difficulty with your husband. And for Adam, 
And for mankind, you're going to have a tough time even growing things in the ground. Before, the ground was aggressively fertile. And now, it's going to be hard to grow things. It's not going to be automatic. And there are going to be thorns and thistles that come up. Thorns? Oh, maybe we're thinking, you know, that's just normal. You know, all that stuff. Pain in childbirth? That's part of life. Well, it is today, but why? Because sin came in. It's not normal. Do you really think that God would design roses? You know, here, I'm going to give my wife a, a dozen roses for anniversary. And here, take them. Maybe you'll get pricked on the thorns. That's really neat, you know? That doesn't make sense. Thorns on roses? Why are there thorns and roses? Because sin came in. It's a result of the curse. Okay? So keep that in mind. Our world is not normal anymore. There's a problem here. Well, God, in the midst of all this, he does something very wonderful. And I, I heard it this morning in the prayer mentioned. It's verse 15. It's, it's a very profound verse. It's an encoded verse. And let me just tell you, first of all, that when I was a young man, I heard this verse probably in Sunday school. And, and I remember thinking, you know, a teacher saying this talks about a savior who's to come, but why is it so encoded? Why is it so complicated? Well, the scripture tells us, you know, had the rulers of this world known God's plan to save man, to make a way of escape for people trapped in sin, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They wouldn't have fulfilled God's plan. And so God encodes it. And he's going to give hundreds of more statements and they'll become increasingly more and more clear. But here's what he says in the first prophecy about a promise of a Savior who's to come. Listen. I will put enmity between you, between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In short, God is saying there's going to be this hostility between Satan and between the woman and between the offspring, a special person that God is going to bring forth from the seed of a woman, from a woman. Now, we all have a mom whether she's still living or not, we all come from a mother and we all have a father, whether he's living or not. Two parents. But God is saying here, there's going to be one who's going to come forth just from a woman. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush Satan's power. But Satan, the serpent, is going to bruise his heel. Now, if you're walking along a trail mountainside. You don't have mountains here in Florida, but there are mountains. Go a little bit north there. You'll find some. You're walking along a trail and a rock or a boulder comes rolling down the mountain and it strikes you in the heel. Well, that's bad, but it's probably not going to kill you, right? You'll recover from it. But what if it hits you in the head, smashes your head? Well, that's pretty much it, isn't it? And God is saying that there's going to be this, this war that Satan is going to wound He's going to inflict pain on the promised Savior who's to come, who's to be born of the woman. But in the process, through that very event, that the Savior is going to crush the head, the power of Satan. And so this was the first promise of a Savior who is to come into the world to save us from Satan, from sin, from death, and from hell. And there's another verse we don't want to miss here. That was the promise. Now God follows up with a picture. God is so thorough, isn't he? He'll tell us what he's going to do you know, through the prophecies. And now he says, let me picture it for you. And he gives hundreds and hundreds of prophecies and hundreds and hundreds of pictures of symbols in the first part of his book, the Old Testament. And here's one of the first and most wonderful little symbols we have. Verse 21. And the Lord God made Adam for Adam and his wife 
garments of skins and clothed them. Look up here. Imagine God selecting some animals. This is just a little piece of a sheepskin from actually from Morocco. Uh, but imagine God selecting some animals, and now he does something very, very terrible to, to, to watch. He kills them. And then he takes those skins and he makes clothing for Adam and Eve out of those skins. He, and the scripture says very clearly that he made the clothes and he clothed them with the skins of the animals. But notice two things that happened here. One, that because Adam and, Adam and Eve had sinned, blood had been shed. There was a shedding of blood. And also, because they had sinned now, God had done something very kind for them. You remember, they weren't comfortable with their fig leaves there, trying to cover their nakedness. Very awkward for them. And so now God makes these nice-fitting clothes out of the skins of the animals, and he dresses them. He clothes them. He shows them how to wear them and puts them on them. And suddenly, Adam and Eve feel comfortable again uh, with each other, and and, and God doesn't seem so, so distant to them anymore. But they still had sinned, and there's still consequence for their sins. And so, next, God puts them out of the garden. But I want you to notice that God had done two things. The blood had been shed because of their sin. Skins would cover their shame. All right? Think of those things. We maybe don't think of the shame part. In the, in the part of the world we work in, with the Muslim world, they think a lot of shame. In other words, they, they don't think so much about if I do something wrong, you know, that's really bad. They think about, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to lose my honor, you know, my respect that people give to me. So I don't want people to know what I did. I'm ashamed of it. God was dealing already with man's sin and with his shame problem, okay? Just keep that in mind. And now we move on to chapter 4. It's the last chapter before we come to a big conclusion here. The scripture says, Now Adam and Eve knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She's excited. The first little baby was born. They call him Cain, which means acquired. Well, maybe, this is a speculation, but maybe she thought, could this be the Savior that God had promised? You know, she wouldn't have understood God's plan. I mean, one little statement to Satan in the Garden of Eden didn't clarify everything for her. I believe she had the idea that God is going to one day send a deliverer. And so maybe she's thinking, could this be him? Well, it didn't take long, and she knew that was not him. For that little baby she held in her arm, guess what? He had the same sin problem that Adam and Eve had. He was a sinner too. He disobeyed his mom and dad. He told lies. He had a stubborn spirit. You know, in Senegal, you know what little kids do to show stubbornness? They go like this. That basically means, I refuse. And they don't even have to say anything. And sometimes you'll just see that little shoulder just sort of flinch, you know, just barely. But it's the same thing. It's a rebellious heart showing itself. No, I won't. I'll do it my way. And this spirit was in Cain. And guess what? When Abel came along, the second boy, you know what they named him? They named him Abel. <laughs> yes. But you know what Abel means? Vanity. Vanity. And now they're thinking, you know what? If, if we're going to be saved from our sin problem, it's got to come from outside of Adam, outside of our family. We can't do it. We, our kids have the same sin problem that we have. You remember the branch? The branch was separated. And the scripture talks about us, all humanity being born into the family of Adam. And we're just like Adam was separated from God when he sinned. So everyone in the family of Adam are separated from God. Now, if this branch could talk, maybe these little leaves would say, look at who we've got a problem. We're separated from the source of life. 
You know, but if these ones out here could talk, you think they would say, oh, we don't have a problem, we're not affected, we're way out here, way far from the separation. That would be silly, wouldn't it? They're all in the same branch, right? And yet, a lot of people today, 1.3 billion Muslims, for example, they say, what Adam did doesn't affect us. Everyone starts with a clean slate. Well, no, not exactly. We don't start with a clean slate. We start with a sin nature right in us. We have a problem from the beginning because we're in Adam, all right? Well, Cain and Abel grow up into young men, and they want to worship God. And the day comes when they're going to worship God. And we're, again, we're not given all the details here, but what we are told is that one of them came by faith, believing God and what he had said, and one did not. And the one who believed God, well, it was Abel. Abel comes to God. He was a shepherd. He brought one of his lambs. God had made it known to him that he should bring a lamb, a firstborn of his lamb, of his flock, and he should offer up the fat on an altar as a sacrifice for sin. Look at what was going on here. Imagine Abel. Here he comes. God had shown him what he was to do, and Abel knows, I'm a sinner. I deserve the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. Okay, The soul that sins must die. But God has given me a plan. God has given a way to punish my sin. He can punish my sin without punishing me. And here's how it would work. I bring a lamb, an innocent lamb without spot or blemish, and I lay my hand on the head of that lamb. And by doing that before God, my sins are transferred to that lamb. All my sins are laid on the lamb. And now, because the innocent lamb now bears my sin, the lamb must die. And the blood is shed. The life of the flesh is in the blood, Scripture says. And that blood covered Abel's sin because he came by faith to God with the blood of the lamb. It didn't remove it. The sin was still, still there wasn't paid for yet. But it was a promise of a payment that would be made later, a full payment. And so that word, big word in, in the Bible is atonement, right? Atonement means covering. It covered Abel's sin before God. And so when God looked down on Abel, he didn't see his sin. He saw the blood of the lamb. Meanwhile, here's Cain. He comes with his good works. He comes and brings beautiful vegetables. Yes, he was a farmer. And some people say, well, he brought what he had. God should have accepted that. He, he brought what he had. God didn't want what he had. Cain could have come and laid his hand on that same lamb with his brother. Or he could have said, hey, Abel, I want to worship God and bring a lamb to him. Take some vegetables and I'll take one of your lambs and I'm going to come to God in that way. But no, Cain was too proud for that. He brought the works of his hard work in the cursed ground. And God refused Cain and his offering while he accepted Abel and his offering. And we read that God came to Cain and he said, Cain, if you will repent, if you'll change your mind and your ways and come to me with the sacrifice of a lamb, I'll accept you too. But Cain was too proud for that. Remember how hard it is for some people to lose their honor. Cain had lost honor. He was mad. His brother had been accepted by God, and God's not accepting his sacrifice. And so instead of repenting and coming to God, what did he do? He goes and he kills his brother. So Cain is not only the father, the founder of the first false religion, but he's also one who used violence to defend his honor. Well, the story goes on in Scripture. And we read about many, many more sacrifices. But we have to go to the end of the story now. In fact, thousands of years, hundreds of, hundreds of stories of sacrifice. I counted 200 sacrifice stories in the Old Testament, and then I stopped. As far as just stories that, or verses that talk about animals, lambs being offered up. 
but they all pointed to one who would come later. And you know who that is, don't you? Yes, it was Jesus. When the, the time that God had chosen had come, God sent forth His Son, His eternal Word, the same Word that said in the beginning, let there be light and there was light. Now look what happened. God chose a woman. She was also uh, an offspring of Adam. She was a sinner. Her name was Mary. She loved God, but she still was born with that sin problem. And she too had come to God by the way of the, the blood of the Lamb. But here comes now the Spirit of God comes over Mary and into the womb of Mary enters the Savior, the one who is without sin. He's the pure Word of God who is there. He's the eternal Son who was always there in the beginning with the Father. And now He comes into the womb of a woman and He's born as a baby. If you could have looked into the heart of the Lord Jesus, you would have seen perfection. No sin. There was no sin in Him. And He grew up as the only perfect boy, the only perfect child ever to be born. And He never sinned. And as He began His ministry at age 30, here's another prophet. The last prophet who had been born six months before Jesus, His job was to announce the arrival of the Savior that had been promised way back in the Garden of Eden. And John says, there he is, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away. Hear the difference? Takes away the sin of the world. So this one who was to come, he would offer up a sacrifice too. But it wouldn't just be to cover, would it? The sacrifice that he would make would what? Remove that sin forever from the eyes of God. And that's what he did. And we have to just speed to the end of the story. But here was the sinless one, Jesus he told his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem and there we're going to be crucified, tortured, crucified, and buried, but the third day I'll rise again. And he went, as was predicted on him, and he took the nails. He took the punishment. And there on the cross, he became that sin offering. The law of sin and death. God had brought in the law of the sacrifice to overcome that law, and now he becomes the last sacrifice. There's a verse in the Bible that says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And after He had suffered on the cross, He was there for just six hours. In the last three hours, the earth was covered with darkness. And in that time now, God is loading on Jesus the sins of us all. He's putting on, a, on Him the punishment we deserve for sin. And when God was satisfied, His wrath was poured out on His Son that sin was punished and God could now righteously forgive people because the penalty had been paid. That penalty of death that God had told Adam in the Garden of Eden had been paid in full. Jesus said, Tetelestai. We translate it, it is finished. It's a word that Greek businessmen would write on their on receipts of customers who had paid their bill in full. It means paid in full. It's finished. Nothing more to do. And Jesus was saying by those words, God was saying, I don't want any more animal sacrifices. It's finished. Your sin debt has been paid in full. And then Jesus was buried. But what happened? Well, we have to think about the burial process briefly. And that is that, you know, in Senegal, I know you don't do this here in America, but in Senegal when a loved one dies, it's the family who has to generally wash the body and they go buy six meters of white linen and they wrap that body in the linen and they go to the cemetery and dig the hole and bury their loved one. It's very sad. Well, Jesus too was wrapped. His body was wrapped in white linen and he was laid in a tomb as had been predicted so long before the tomb of a rich man and it was sealed. But you know what happened on the third day? The tomb was open. Jesus wasn't there. He had risen. He had conquered death. You know, he didn't deserve to die. He died in our place. 
the scripture says that his body didn't even start back to corruption, back to decay, because he was the sinless one. And God vindicated his sacrifice, showed us that I accept it by raising him from the dead on the third day. And Jesus began to show himself alive to his disciples and said, because I live, you shall live also. Those who believe in me will not perish. And so you know what? For us who believe, well, guess what death is? It's nothing to be feared anymore. Before it was a tyrant. It was Satan's favorite weapon. He's lost that weapon for us as believers. It's now just a door, isn't it? Through which we can pass one day to enter into the very presence of God. That's what death is. Oh, death, where is your sting? Scripture says, oh, grave, where is your victory? Now, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close with one more little illustration. I need two, uh, two guys. Uh, would you kind of like come up here and just help me on that? I just need your backs, okay? I'll be kind to you. Don't worry. You could just stand here facing me. That'll work right here. It's good. Yeah, perfect. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you represent me and everybody else, okay? The sinner, all right? So we'll do this. And you will represent the Savior. All right? Great, thanks. All right, now, if we got what we deserved, we should get the nails, right? We get the punishment. We're the sinner. But what's that verse we just quoted? 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, let's think through that now with this little visual here. Here's what happened. God made his holy son to become that sin offering. So our sin was laid on Jesus. And now he takes the nails. He takes the punishment for us. The one who knew no sin, who had no sin. And God loaded on him the sin, that, the, the sins, the punishment we deserved. And when God was sufficiently satisfied that that sin debt had been paid in full and that he could be righteous now in forgiving sinners, Jesus said, it's finished, paid in full. And Jesus died. He was buried, but he rose again the third day. And now God's promise is to all who believe, is if you'll believe, I will forgive you of your sins and I will clothe you in the righteousness of my son. And that's what the Bible calls justification, declared righteous. God made him who knew no sin to become so that sin offering for us so that we might be made righteous in him. You remember the double problem we have? Thank you, brothers, so much. You remember the double problem we talked about, sin and shame? I have something that I really desperately need to get rid of. It's sin. How can I get rid of that? And there's something that I don't have, and that's perfection, that's righteousness, that I need to get. Well, Jesus took care of that on the cross and by his resurrection. He paid for my sins in full. So God says, I can forgive you. The law of sin and death has been satisfied. I'm satisfied now. That's paid in full. And if you believe, well, I'll clothe you in the righteousness of my son. So the, 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 the sin has been dealt with, and I'm not ashamed. You know, even if just my sins were forgiven and I'm still left as sort of just who I am, I still would be unacceptable to live forever with God. But because... I'm now clothed in the righteousness of His Son. I'm acceptable. I'm accepted in the beloved Son of God. And so, I'm totally comfortable again to think about living with my Creator. And now what does God want to do in our lives as believers? Well, He wants to mold us more and more into the image of His Son to conform our character back to be just like Jesus. And isn't that a wonderful thing? That as believers, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, then that process goes on. It's not about what we do to be saved, but now he wants to work in us to make us more like himself. Let's give him thanks.
just thank you for this amazing plan that we see already outlined in the first chapters of your book. And we just glory in the fullness of him who meets our need, as we sing. We glory in your son who came down and took care of our sin problem, took care of our sin and shame problem, and has made a way for us to enjoy fellowship with you again. And we pray, too, that you'll help us to be good ambassadors for Christ, as we read in the verse preceding the one we just quoted, that you've made us ambassadors and that we have a message for the world, be reconciled to God. For you made your son, who had no sin, to become that sin offering for us, so that we and also our neighbors, those around us, might also become the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we give you praise and thanks. Amen. Thank you.